in 2004, our point in time count was in the neighborhood of 2,500. And honestly, I thought to myself, with 2,500 on any given night, that's nothing. I'll knock this out in three or four years, and then I'll go back to the bank. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. Welcome to a special two-part episode of the Mental Health Download. We're going to be exploring the annual point-in-time count in both Tulsa and Oklahoma City. To do that, we're talking to some of the foremost experts on homelessness in Oklahoma. In this episode, you're going to hear from Greg Shin. He's our Associate Director and Chief Housing Officer. Greg began his social work career in 1988 on the Bowery in Manhattan, where he worked in homeless shelters and performed street outreach in subways, parks, and flop houses. From 93 until 2001, Greg served as the Director of Social Services for the John Hughes House, a shelter in Lower Manhattan's Financial District. Then in 2001, he came to Oklahoma looking to be a part of the association's growing housing program, and he's been with us ever since. So Greg's going to be interviewing Dan Strawn, Executive Director of the Homeless Alliance in Oklahoma City. Greg will talk a lot more about Dan's past and his present, and Together, they're really going to be talking about what the point-in-time count means in Oklahoma City. So let's get right to it. The mental health download starts now. Okay, today we are joined by one of my colleagues and mentors, Dan Strawn. Dan Strawn is the executive director of the Homeless Alliance in Oklahoma City. And uh, really, honestly, Dan is one of the most interesting people I've ever met. He has a really diverse background. For many years, he was in the banking industry. He worked for the Federal Reserve Bank. And then late in his career, he changed courses and he embarked on this adventure where he ended up being the executive director for the Homeless Alliance in Oklahoma City. And I think it's fair to say that at this time and for many years, Dan has been the go-to person for the public sector, the private sector, for the, the the voice of what's happening with homelessness in Oklahoma City, as well as Dan previously served as the chair for the Oklahoma Governor's Interagency Council on Homelessness for two years. He's been on that council along with me for many years. And so I I just really want to welcome to the show Dan Strawn. Thank you, Greg. Glad to be here. And Dan, if you could just tell us just a couple of minutes um, how it was uh, that you went from banking to transitioning to this um, career fighting uh, with social justice at the heart of your cause to end homelessness and how the Homeless Alliance began and kind of the history of that would be just really great for our listeners. Oh, okay. Well, sure. So you're, you're right. I was in banking. I was at the Federal Reserve and uh, had been for 10 years and great place to work. There was a, a lunch with some oil and gas guys and uh, a, a couple of white shoe lawyers and uh, some other folks at a local restaurant downtown, been around for a long time. And this restaurant was situated between the main bus station and our largest homeless shelter and our public library, our downtown public library. Who at, the, at that time, this was 2000. 
three. The public library was our de facto day shelter in Oklahoma City because we didn't have a day shelter. And so you could sit there and watch, eat lunch in this restaurant and talk about your business issues and watch a, a parade of stereotypically looking homeless people just kind of marching back and forth between the bus station and the library and the big shelter. And, and one of the business people, Nick Noble, just said to the rest of the group, you know, there's, there's just got to be a smarter way for Oklahoma City to do homelessness. It feels like every year we put a lot of money into the system and the numbers never get better. It's just got to be a way for us to be smarter about that. And everybody sitting around the table said, yeah, yeah, there, there probably is a smarter way. And so as a group, we, we went to three cities who back then had a reputation for having effective systems for the care of the homeless. We went to Phoenix and, uh, and Philadelphia and Columbus, Ohio, and, you know, toured their systems and talked to their providers and that kind of stuff. We came back to Oklahoma City and hired a consultant to do a community needs assessment and the gaps analysis. And from that information, it was, it was really kind of clear the things that needed to happen. We were the only city our size in the country that we could find that didn't have a day shelter with services attached. We're a big spread out city with a lot of great providers, but they're located all over the city and we have a, a less than robust public transportation system. So just accessing services was, was really challenging. And then we had an inkling, although we didn't really understand it back then in 2003, that, that housing was just an issue. So we also recognized as a, as a group that an ad hoc group of business people getting together once a month for lunch to discuss those things weren't going to be able to make them happen. And so that group incorporated as the Homeless Alliance. I moved over to become our, our first employee and we got to work at kind of addressing those issues. I, I will say, just to be completely honest, there was, on my part at least, an excess of naivete um, at that time. How so? Well, how, how yeah, so? so in 2004, our point in time count was in the neighborhood of 2,500. And honestly, I thought to myself, with 2,500 on any given night, that's nothing. I'll knock this out in three or four years, and then I'll go back to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand that. It was a little that. more complicated than I thought it was. So, mm -hmm. um, so aside from having two daughters, probably the best decision I've made in my entire life. Well, uh, I think it was the best decision for the city of Oklahoma City as well. And, uh, you know, your leadership has uh, been made a huge impact on the city. We could probably talk all day about the stories, the lives that have literally been saved and changed and how you've grown that organization. Uh, so so how, uh, how many employees does the Homeless Alliance have now, starting from a staff of one? <laughs> so now, 15 years on, effective July 1, we'll have 53 staff members operating the day shelter and our various housing programs and we have, over the last three or four years, really become much more involved in sort of supportive employment services. So Curbside Chronicles, uh, an example of that, and we'll be opening a, a flower shop. And it'll have staff later this summer. We've we've opened a snow cone stand that employs um, at-risk youth 
then we'll open a second snow cone stand later this summer that will have the same target population. So that's uh, really a lot of innovation, bringing community partners together to co-locate the service delivery all on your campus, which is called West Town, Mm -hmm. in the center of Oklahoma City, and then how you've micro-enterprised out (laughs) to um, meet the needs of uh, people experiencing homelessness, which of course is services, housing, and jobs, yeah, and income. economic opportunities, yeah. income. So it's really an, an amazing journey of recovery. Now you you spoke about uh, back in the beginning the point in time count, which is the count mandated by U.S. Department of Housing Urban Urban Development. We we'll just call them HUD, every single year. And that count takes place all across the country. And uh, you said that there was uh, around 2,500 people on any given night in Oklahoma City experiencing homelessness. And uh, a couple of things. So uh, we want to talk about the 2019 point-in-time count. Uh, And the first statistic is that we counted 1,273 on uh, on a night in January um, of 2019 uh, when the count was conducted all across the country, but 1,273 was the number in Oklahoma City. So obviously it's decreased since you're talking about 2003, 2004. Yeah. Uh, um, so uh, I want to talk about that, but also I want to just give us a little bit of how you plan this and organize it and what it takes to carry out this count, how you get people to sign up for it and participate and the scope of how you take this massive undertaking on every single year. Sure. So we do we do, do the count every year. Uh, I, I think you're really only required to do a count of unsheltered every other year, but we've always done it every year just because it's really good data to have for trend analysis. And so we start, boy, you know, three months before January. We typically start the planning process in, in early October and bring together the service providers, you know, make sure we all know the day. We spend a great deal of time with all the entities that do street outreach, identifying where unsheltered homeless people may be residing, you know, whether it's under the the bridge at at Virginia and Oklahoma Boulevard or a campsite off in the woods somewhere or a particular park. And we, we have for the last couple or three years used just a big Google map that we drop pins on. So, and we try to update that at least every other week because that the population can be transient where a camp was yesterday. It may not, it may be somewhere else tomorrow. So keeping up with that data so that on the, on the morning of the count, when we send our volunteers out, we can try to get the, the best data we can on unsheltered homeless for those that are in uh, emergency homeless shelters or transitional housing programs because we know where they are and we can get that data from the providers or straight out of the homeless management information system. So that, that part's actually fairly easy. The, if the unsheltered count requires a great deal of coordination and just a bunch of volunteers because you only have that one day to do the count. And if you're hitting, 
you know, two, 200 different identified campsites, you're going to need a couple hundred volunteers. So let's talk about some of those volunteers and the people that you get who really come out to assist and what they learn. It, you know, it is the craziest thing. So we've, we've been doing the unsheltered count. Well, gosh, since we've been working really hard on it since 2013. And um, when we did our first registry week and um, that, that count, I mean, you have to be here at three 30 in the morning to go out on the street at four o'clock in the morning. And, and it, it can be a, it can be daunting if you're, if you're, uh, not, if you haven't been exposed to this population to, to go into a camp in the dark of night in the middle of winter and wake people up to survey that said, we'll put up the volunteer list three or four weeks before the count and it, it will fill up in less than 24 hours and then we have to then we have to start telling people that you know i'm sorry we we have the 200 volunteers we need it's it's really amazing how the community broadly has adopted that event as something that um especially young people young professionals really want to participate in and it and, and some high-profile volunteers. Yeah, too. and we, yeah, we get yeah. A lot of community leaders take part this this year. Uh, well, and you know this, Greg, the the executive director of the Oklahoma Housing Finance Agency, a statewide agency, was out at four in the morning in the camps, and she then she volunteered at the day shelter and did surveys. She did surveys for twelve straight hours from four in the morning. Well, I guess it was 14 hours because she finished at six at night. So um, that's commitment. Yeah, it's commitment. And yeah. and the thing is, yeah. is for the volunteers, it, it really is an eye opening experience. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard from people just that I had no idea people in our community could were, were having to live this way. You know, what what can I do besides just go count people? Um, so it's, it really is an educational experience for a lot of our And you do a great job of raising the issue um, into the awareness of the general public by conducting such a uh, comprehensive volunteer effort and getting everybody to, uh, to buy into the whole idea that the better count we do, the more people we can help. And so I think you really deserve a lot of credit for that vision, Dan. Now, now um, uh, we did see uh, the number was up 8% yep. from 2018. It was a really cold night in January, yep. which could have some, some impact on it. But we also know that since 2009, if you looked at it year over year, that actually represents a 14% decrease. Yep over a multi-year period. So maybe you could talk about just the little bump in the count that we saw this year and the overall downward trajectory sure. for a minute. And I, and I think that's really important to look at that 10-year trend that, that we're headed mm -hmm. in the right direction. Um, there, because of the just the nature of the count, it's a one-night thing and it can be... Um, it can it can be impacted by the weather or you know maybe two of your outreach team volunteers didn't show up or a camp that you knew had 10 people in it yesterday didn't have anybody in it this morning for anyways that 
on any given count can there's a lot of variables so really looking at the multi-year trend is important for for this year's count that eight percent increase some of that was we, we this is the first year our cold weather contingency program has been as robust as it was this past winter. So um, it was a cold night, cold weather contingency cots were open. And so uh, I, I think we were able to count a lot of unsheltered people that we might have missed otherwise that would mm-hmm. uh, probably had something to do with uh, at least part of the increase. Um, we tend to sort of segment the population partly because that's what's required for the reports between sheltered and unsheltered and vets and non-vets and families with children and all that kind of stuff. So we've really had some issues the last three or four years with family homelessness. And so we've driven some resources in that direction over the last couple of years as a, as a community. And, uh, and, and so we had second straight year of decline in, in family homelessness. So that's gratifying, but, and Greg, that's you, good news. Yeah, you yeah. know, this better than anybody. It's, it's a bit like, uh, you know, squeezing a water balloon. There are limited resources. And so when you put extra resources on, for example, families or children, you run the risk of, you know, maybe transition age youth or, chronic homelessness or veteran homelessness goes up because you had to move resources around. So, uh, Sure. But at the same time, with the 14% decrease over a 10-year period, um, you know, speak to, uh, you know, is that because just of the um, more global organization or, or um, um, collaboration between the all the agencies that you're kind of helping spearhead as well as other community leaders? Or um, do you think you've made progress on actually accessing housing, which is the solution? To homelessness, <laughs> or, you know, so, I, I mean, what yeah. are the kinds of things that would lead to a multi-year downward trend like I, that? I, I think there's several things. Um, one is the, is we're much better at collaborating than we were a decade ago. And, and part of that is West town. Part of that is just, um, uh, information technology infrastructure that allows us to better share data on shared clients and communicate that way. Um, part of it is our partnership with the Oklahoma City Housing Authority and the Housing Finance Agency to prioritize chronically homeless and veteran homeless for vouchers and public housing. That's been an ongoing partnership that's given us access to more housing. I do kind of feel like as a community, we, we can always be better and more efficient in the, in the provision of services, but, but we've, we've reached a real point of diminishing returns on that. that, that, um, that there's not much more to be gained by uh, uh, seamless collaboration and efficiency mm-hmm. in services. It, we are at the point where we're not going to make much more in the way of progress without much more housing. More resources yeah. uh, at this time because uh, you know what the methods are. You know how to collaborate. Yeah. 
you've yeah. built some of the housing models, you know how effective they are, and so therefore what we need to be is resource rich. Right? That's it exactly. I mean, we you know we yeah. learned housing first from Tulsa from you. Um, and, and we've had Dr. Sinbaris down. We've I, I, we've got an international best practice for our coordinated entry system in the BI Spadat. I think we're all, we're doing all the right things. It, but but you come to the point where you've got the right assessment and, and you know you you have the case management resources, but if, if you don't have housing to put people in, those numbers are not going to get better. And yeah, you know where the people are. Yeah, yeah. You're counting yeah. them. You yeah, just we, need access to housing. You know what right? their barriers are because we're surveying them and we've done all this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's our barrier right now is lack of access to truly affordable housing. So uh, you previously mentioned uh, chronic homelessness. Mm -hmm. Those are the most long term and truly disabled homeless individuals or families. Um, so the current survey said that about 20 percent of the point in time count total those individuals were counted among the chronically homeless. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can speak about some of the trends uh, among the chronically homeless or challenges there. So, um, again, it, re it really comes down to a question of available resources. So we have, um, you know, we as Tulsa participated in the original 100,000 Homes Pro uh, campaign, national campaign to house chronic and veteran homeless people, um, which later became zero 2016 and all that kind of stuff. And that helped us get, uh, bring a lot of best practices to the community. Um, but again, where, where our limitation appears to be is um, with a, available housing. Um, we have in that, in Oklahoma City, we call that initiative Journey Home. And uh, we have a roughly 90% success rate, a one-year housing retention rate for chronic homeless and veterans. So if we're able to get you in housing, you know, nine times out of 10, a year later, you're still going to be housed and, and making lots of progress on, on whatever your barriers were going in. Um, yeah, so as a former banker, Dan, if you can offer your clients a return on investment <laughs> of 90%, yeah. wouldn't you say that's a pretty good investment? It absolutely is. And, and really, to take that banking analogy a step further, we, we've done some recent, just this calendar year, cost studies and, and spread out across the system, a chronically homeless individual is costing the community about $22,000 a year. I, I can get you into sustained housing with relatively intensive case management for eleven thousand. It's a, it's half the cost to do the the right thing, the humane thing. So, again, as a straightforward business proposition, it, it, it only makes sense to invest at where those mm -hmm. those savings can come from. And so you had roughly how many chronically homeless individuals on oh, uh, in this count? 250-ish. So 250 times $11,000 per person per year. Yeah. Multiply that times 10 years. I mean, we're talking millions, millions. of dollars millions. just for housing 250 individuals. Um, and so... Uh, 
I, I really appreciate what you're talking about. We, we've heard you say now, well, the, really the answer is access to more housing, and that's the recurring answer. Yeah, it so, absolutely um, is. Oklahoma City, well, yeah. all of Oklahoma has a, has a long-term reputation of, of having a very affordable housing market. But, I mean, we know when people talk about affordable housing, they're talking about affordable to people that are at or near area median income. So in Oklahoma City, that's $50,000. So what's affordable to a family with $50,000 is in no way affordable to, you know, that individual whose only income is, is Social Security. Or who has no Or income. no income, yeah. Right. So I, I know we've, we've referenced this number of 1,273 in 2019, mm -hmm. but there's also some relatively different methodologies for measuring homeless counts. And, uh, you know, the city said the actual numbers could be up to five times higher than that. And there's the Department of Education definition. And so maybe, maybe we can talk about, um, you know, what's the difference between this 1,273 and some other ways of counting homelessness that may be estimated? Sure. So I, I, I guess... There's a couple of things. I mean, the point in time count is, a, as you mentioned, it's a it's a requirement for HUD, and 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 so the homeless people that you are counting in HUD's count is is, is those people that meet HUD's definition, and so that's a person that's uh, in a homeless shelter, in a transitional housing program, or a place not fit for human habitation. So on the street, so that's who you're counting. There's a there's a a large, large population of, of what people call couch homeless or, or couch surfers or people living doubled up. So those are folks that have lost their own housing, but they're staying with a friend or a family member or somebody from the church without benefit of the lease. So kind of from our perspective as a, as a homeless services provider, that's a person who's at risk of homelessness. But from the Federal Department of Education's perspective, that's a homeless person without just really significant resources, it's very difficult to count that couch homeless population. When you drive down any street in Oklahoma City and, and maybe every other house you pass has a couch homeless person, you would never know because they're indistinguishable. So one of the ways they estimate that count is at the, at the public school level is they ask every child as they enroll, where'd you sleep last night? And, and so if they get other, any answer other than it at home, then they start to dig deeper. And in last year, the, the last academic year, Oklahoma public school, Oklahoma city public schools, just that one district, not the 28 school districts that touch it on the periphery, um, 5,500 kids were homeless as department of, Education defines that. Now, only about 20% of those were actually in my system. So that's part of the way they get that estimate of, of your, mm -hmm. your count is, is really probably about five times what, what you're actually counting because that allows you to roll in the couch homeless population. I suspect that's the uh, for Oklahoma City, I suspect that's pretty, uh, that's a, that's way on the low side, way on the low. So, and that's, you know, 
Um, I mean, that's a staggering statistic. At the very least, we could say those families are at risk of literal homelessness, Absolutely. of becoming unsheltered homeless, yep. or at the very least, they're currently priced out of the market and they're staying with somebody else, so they really can't buy into and access whatever type of housing yep. would be available yep. to them right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So um, uh, we've talked about we need much greater access. We need much more investment in affordable housing as the solution. Um, but let's talk about some of the causes related to homelessness. Why, even though we've housed more people year over year, why do we not get to a virtual zero count? Um, you know, we can talk about things like mental health and substance abuse as main factors of unemployment. You mentioned transportation. So let's talk about um, some of those things. Like, what are the causes? Because we may, we're working really hard yeah. at it, but obviously we have a long way to go. Um, yeah, so um, you're absolutely right. We're getting better and faster at moving homeless people into housing than we have ever been before. Um, but, but we still have this problem. So, so where's, where's that coming from? And it's the inflow. It's, it's the, the number of people who are becoming homeless is outstripping our ability to house them. And, mm -hmm. and, and again, <laughs> that, that is, um, that is a function of the availability of affordable, accessible housing. Our former deputy director, who's moved on to be an executive director, she has a really good way of putting it. Certainly, this inadequate mental health treatment, inadequate substance abuse treatment resources are contributing factors. But Kim would always say, you know, there's a lot more people with mental illness in Oklahoma City who are housed than there are homeless mentally ill. And, and so if it was about mental illness, you wouldn't see that. And same thing with, with addiction. There's a lot more uh, people with addiction disorders in Oklahoma City who are housed than there are who are homeless. So you can't, you can't blame homelessness on addiction, um, you know, we 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 just keep coming back to it's it's about the housing, and um, and and yeah, mental illness, uh, substance use, uh, difficulty in accessing primary health care, um, a ten-year waiting list at the State Department of Rehab Services for for people with developmental disabilities. Those are those are all contributing factors. But they pale in, in comparison to the the importance of the availability of affordable, accessible housing. Well, I think that's a really good point. There are certainly a lot of uh, wealthy, upper class, educated, or middle class working people that have mental illness or have substance abuse issues, and they're all in living in housing. Yeah, there right? you go. There you go. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah, it took Kim to really point that out to me, but I, I think it. I think it tells it says volumes, and you know it's. Not, I mean, so, it's not an employment issue either. I mean, we, we're down to three percent unemployment. Three percent, right? Been really low for for years and years now. Living wage, housing wage, jobs that pay at that level—that's certainly an issue. 
but it kind of comes down to Oklahoma County, just Oklahoma County, 135,000 people living at or below the poverty line. And while we have tons of, we have a really good housing market for folks that are, you know, 80% of AMI and above, we, we just don't have any, we just don't have enough for those that are 50, 60% of AMI and below. Right. So, I mean, a lot of people that might gain employment would be at minimum wage or a little bit above. And um, how does that compare to what what might you know about what the real living wage is to actually afford housing? in Oklahoma? So, uh, I mean, you, you see a lot of various estimates for what that is in Oklahoma City, but um, yeah, I'm going to kind of stick with OFAs and it's it's a little over 12 bucks an hour. So if you're, you know, if you're at minimum wage here, which is seven and a quarter, uh, you're you're kind of a long way from from having the capacity to 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 rent decent housing in Oklahoma City. And what you know, one of the things that that we try with our curbside chronicle vendors is move them into more traditional employment as they gain those skills and. And we're we've been pretty successful at that, but many of the many of the vendors that we have moved on into more traditional employment are in minimum wage jobs, and so they'll continue to sell the magazine, and you know on weekends or evenings or off shift times, just to be able to to make ends meet. Yeah, well, uh, there's certainly no lack of effort. Um, from people like that that are trying to find their way back into the housing market. I can certainly appreciate that. So um, uh, uh, back to a point that I raised uh, a few minutes ago, which was your efforts to raise public awareness around these issues. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about the event that you held on June 4th at the Tower Theater in uh, downtown Oklahoma City. Um, and you had Mayor David Holt there. Uh, you were a speaker at that event, as well as uh, Jared Shaded with the city of Oklahoma City and Megan Mueller from your staff. And um, you just put on a really stellar event, Dan. And, um, you know, talk about the impact of that and how you promote that and, and, and what you're trying to shoot for with that event. So we... Uh... We wanted to do an event to help educate the public about about homelessness generally. And so uh, we released the point in time on the same day that the June issue of the Curbside Chronicle came out. And, and in terms of content, they kind of mirrored each other. So Curbside Chronicle, of course, is you know, 36 pages long, so we could delve more deeply mm -hmm. and, uh, into some of the data. But we, we really wanted to, to bring extra attention to that, um, to, to the issue, partly because MAPS is, MAPS, the fourth edition of that MAPS is to be voted on later this year. And, and, uh, Can you tell us what MAPS oh, is? Oh, sure. Metropolitan Area Projects. It's, uh, it's a mm -hmm. one cent sales tax that Oklahoma City originally implemented to, to develop Bricktown and the canal and all that kind of stuff, and the and then another maps for schools and another maps for the big park that's opening this fall, and 
Now it's our chance to look at a, at a fourth set of projects that that say a penny sales tax fund. And so um, we, uh, I, I have a, just a marketing genius on my staff, Kinsey Crocker, who, who really puts those things together. And, um, so we did a lot of social media promotion of the event and we very, it's kind of funny, we very purposefully did not ask for RSVPs because sometimes that, that scares people off. And literally a couple hours before the event, we didn't know if anybody was going to show up and ended up, uh, ended up completely filling the tower. There was hundreds of people there, yeah. <laughs> in standing room only. And right. uh, so it was very well attended. And people appeared, at least to me, to be very engaged. And we got a lot of great commentary. Uh, feedback from through social media after the event and the, the traditional media, the newspapers and televisions covered it pretty well. Um, and I, I think it really did bring some attention to, um, to the issue generally and to, and, and to the relative simplicity of the solution to the issue, which is, is housing, housing, housing. I mean, that's, uh, that's what we've been talking about. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, I was. Th I thought the mayor did an excellent job. De Deborah Jenkins, the exec of the Housing Finance Agency, uh, did an excellent mm -hmm. job. One of our city council, one of our new city council persons, Mickey Nice, was kind of the MC and kept things. Well. Yeah, she was great. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. did and because she's young and smart. Um, she was monitoring social media throughout, and so she would come out between <laughs> and say, so-and-so tweeted, <laughs> which was, you know, that would have never occurred to me to do, but it was, it was uh, well-received and, and kind of uh, made the event seem a little more maybe topical than just some talking heads. So uh, it was, uh, you, know, we're, you know, we're not an agency that does events. We don't do fundraisers and we don't do galas and golf tournaments and stuff like that so for an event like that to come off as well as it did I'm really really proud of the staff well congratulations on um, another great um, product with the 2019 point in time count and on your efforts with all your colleagues in Oklahoma City to promote the event and to get the mayor up there speaking about the need for the city to invest in affordable housing to end homelessness um, with Deborah Jenkins. Uh, it was just really um, galvanizing and motivating and uh, creates positive energy. And uh, you just you create positive energy every time you motivate people about the topic of homelessness, Dan. And I just want to say it's been really fantastic talking with you. Well, here. thank you. Today, I'm honored to be in the fight with you yeah. uh, here in the state of Oklahoma and really um, we really appreciate your time and uh, uh, thank you. Hopefully we'll have you back again for another podcast. Okay. Uh, and when we do, I will remind everybody that when we first started doing housing first, I probably called you like 20 times to say, what do you do about this? What do you do about that? Because Tulsa's been, you know, just a, a national leader in implementing that national best practice and, and developing the housing folks need. So we really look 
to you all for your leadership and appreciate the generosity you have always shown to helping the providers in Oklahoma City step up. Thanks again, Dan, and we look forward to talking to you again real soon. Take care, Greg.